welcome to 5% Radio, where it's all about learning like no one else today so you can live like no one else tomorrow. Please be sure to share and subscribe. Hello and welcome back to another episode of 5% Radio. And guys, I'm super excited about this. So we're in episode 23 and we are nearing the 1,000 downloads mark. We are closing in on 1,000 downloads total for the show, which may not be a big deal to some of you, but I am super excited to cross that. And then the next goal will be 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 downloads. So super excited about that. That being said, if you listen to the show regularly and you have not subscribed to or followed the show, please do that. If you've not rated the show, I would really appreciate it. And lastly, if you've not shared the show, even if it's just one episode, share your favorite episode with someone else that you know who's like-minded, who's looking to chase their dreams, who wants more out of life, and hopefully the information can benefit them as well. Now, that being said, let's talk about flying across the Atlantic and having no plan B. I want to start off this talk with, uh, you know, kind of kind of a shout-out to my dad, if you will. And my dad was graduating high school. He he skipped his high school graduation, like the ceremony, you know, they walk across stage and he has his hat and his gown and they give him the, you know, his GED and whatever. They give him his diploma. He skipped that ceremony and told him, just mail the diploma to my house. And he went into the military because that was his only way out of the situation that he was in. That was his, this is what I'm going to do to get out of the um, impoverished area that I live in. They were so broke that they wouldn't even, he told me just the other day that they wouldn't even stay in hotels or motels when they were traveling. The first time he ever stayed in any sort of an even motel, like I'm talking like, you know, the ones you go into and you're like, I don't know if we're going to leave here with bed bugs or fleas. Like this place is disgusting. It was $64. Like the first time they ever even stayed in one of those. He was 10 years old. The first time he ever remembered staying in one of those, they were so broke they had to borrow someone's car to go on vacation. They slept in like rest stops when they went on vacation because they didn't have the money. And he knew that I have to do so. I've got to have another plan to get out of here because obviously what people are doing in this area, what, what's been done for the past generations, like it's not working. I've got to do something else. So he skips his high school graduation ceremony goes into the military, and I am going to get to my story, but I just want to kind of lay some groundwork here. He gets out of the military as he's in the airport. He he just got discharged from the military. You know, he got his papers done. He's he's good to go. He is now back to being a citizen. He's done in the Army, and he's in an airport, and he looks at an ad in the newspaper, and it's government jobs starting at $50,000 a year. Now, this was back in like 1989, 1990, and he ends up calling, and he, uh, he interviews and he actually, it looks like he's going to get the job. So he has to go to this basically tech school to do air traffic control. So he goes to tech school and my grandfather, my mom's dad, who's a phenomenal guy, tells him, you know, my, my grandpa was a business owner and he understands how hard it is to really make it at something that's, you know, making decent money. And he, he, he tells my dad, he says, you know, you, you, you might want to have a plan B. Like this is, I'm, it's great that you have the job. Like, you know, he's, he's already part of the family at this point, but it's, it's great that you're looking at getting this job that you got hired, that you're going to tech school, but you, you might want to have a plan B. And my dad said, I'm not going to have a plan B. I'm going to make plan A work. He goes on into school and they told him during school, you know, it's best if, if you have no one living with you, you know, preferably you're single, you've got no one living with you and you're not working. Well, he was married. He had a kid. His brother was living with him. He was working. So he did everything that he's not supposed to do. And he's trying to memorize maps of airspace that are literally the size of roughly, you know, half to three quarters of your kitchen table. And he's got to memorize every single little detail on that map of where this tower is and where this is and all this different stuff. 
how many miles this point is from this on the map, and he's got to memorize that and be able to regurgitate that on a test. So he's done everything against what you are traditionally supposed to do by living with someone, by being married, by having a kid, by working a job. He's doing everything that they recommend that you not do, and he says, I'm going to make this work anyway. I'm not going to have a plan B. Plan A is going to work, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. That's a massive point when it comes to being successful, because if you go into success thinking, well, you know, hopefully this works out, but if it doesn't, I'm always going to have this to fall back on. Generally speaking, if you do that, you're only going to be like 90% committed, and that 10% is going to hold you back from actually doing whatever it takes. So that being said, let's talk about a story of a man that was willing to do whatever it takes that had no possible way to have a plan B that actually was the first man to ever attempt solo flying across the Atlantic, and there was no way to have a plan B when you're out in the middle of the ocean in an airplane by yourself, and you're past the point of no return, you've got to either make it work or you're going to die trying. And this man's name was Charles Lindbergh, and he was a man from St. Louis, Missouri, and he was actually the first man to ever even attempt to fly solo from New York all the way to Paris, to fly all the way across the Atlantic from New York, taking off and then being in the air for over 30 hours and getting to Paris. Now, when he did this, no one had ever even tried to fly across the Atlantic solo. And to add to that, no one had ever actually been able to do it, period. No one had ever flown across the Atlantic. Now, many of the seasoned pilots from World War I had been trying to, and they'd been doing it in tandem, you know, two guys. That way, when, when one would get tired, they could switch off and they could kind of take shifts, if you will. But no one had actually been able to do it. Now, France had some killer pilots, some actual aces from World War One, and, and four of them, so two teams of two guys, four of them had tried, but they were never heard from or seen again, so we can only assume that they did not make it, that they died. But during this time, Charles Lindbergh was actually a male delivery pilot, and back then, planes didn't really go nearly as fast as they do today, and the engine would seize up, or maybe something would go wrong, and, and during those times, the pilot back then would actually just basically get out of the cockpit, walk to the edge of the wing, and then jump off and, and you know, parachute down safely to the ground, and, and this was not a common thing that people did this, but he did this once, and, and he survived, you know, the, the plane got crashed up, and, you know, ruined and someone's like, hey, you know, it's pretty lucky you did it once. And then he did it twice. No one had ever done that twice. Got out of the cockpit, walked to the edge of the wing, jumped off, plane, you know, crashed and you survived. A third time. And then a fourth time. And people actually started telling him, man, you're the first person to ever even survive twice. And they started calling him Lucky Lindbergh. Charles Lucky Lindbergh. His name was Lucky Lindbergh. And in his biography, he talked about all the time he spent in the air and, you know, you've got so much time to think because when you're flying a plane, it's not like flying or flying. I mean, I, I love to fly in my car. I love to drive fast, but it, it's not like driving a car where, you know, there's constantly people around you and you're watching lanes on the road and you're watching lines and you're making sure you don't go in the ditch and you're making sure you don't hit the guy next to you and, you know, hit your brakes when you need to and speed up. If you, it, It's not like that. Like when you're when you're flying a plane, there's there's not really a whole lot of people up there in the air that are anywhere close to you. So it's you just have time to think. And I can tell you as someone who has flown small aircraft, I have 14 hours of flight time. I do want to finish my private pilot's license eventually. But as someone who's done this, you it's, it's the most like you can see if it's clear visibility that day and things are good. You can see for 10, 15 plus miles just straight. I mean, you can see so far that you can see if you get up high enough, the curvature of the earth and it's just you and the sky and the clouds, and you're just you're just taking everything in, but you've got a lot of time to think. 
So he's up there flying and he starts daydreaming about, man, what would it be like to fly across the Atlantic? Man, no one's done that. I I wonder if I could do it. What would that really be like to be the first man ever in history that was able to do this? And not only the first person that was ever able to do it, but the first person ever to even attempt it solo. What would that be like? Now, Albert Einstein said famously that imagination is more important than knowledge. So even though Charles Lucky Lindbergh didn't know how, he knew why. Man, that would be great to be the first one. Now, keep this in mind. No one had ever heard of this guy. Okay, he's crashed four planes, and from the outside looking in, it would have appeared that he probably would be the absolute worst guy to ever attempt this. Like, if you've crashed four planes, yes, you've survived, but you're you're probably not the best. Like, dude, you've had four planes seize up on you that you had to jump out of. This is probably not the greatest idea. Like, what are you going to do, parachute into the ocean and drown? Like, that's you probably shouldn't try this. Now, Outside of these three things, he lacked the experience, the money, and the backing financially, or actually the plane. He, he lacked everything, but outside of that, he was good. Outside of the experience, the money, and the plane, he's, he's got everything going for him. So that's not the story he chose to tell himself, though. He chose to tell himself a story of, look, man, I've already survived one, two, three, four crashes where I got out of the cockpit, walked to the edge of the wing. Man, if I can survive that, I think if anyone could do I think I could make this work. So he keeps thinking about this and keeps thinking about this and keeps thinking about this and he decides to tell his boss. And he shares the idea with his boss and his boss told him four of the top pilots are already missing. You don't even have the experience they have. You'll kill yourself. Don't even think about it. He says, no, I really think I can do this. And again, it does not matter what others believe, what others' opinion is about your dream. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if they think you should have a plan B. It doesn't matter if they think it's realistic or not. It doesn't matter if they point to externalities and circumstances and stories from the past. And if they say, you know what, insert your name here, look in the rearview mirror at the things you've not done, the things you've tried, the things you've failed at. You've got no experience in this. How? What makes you think you can do this? It doesn't matter. F.A. Hayek said this, nothing is more securely lodged than the ignorance of the experts. And Napoleon Hill said, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. So remember this, keep those in mind as we talk about this. So his boss tells him, I'm not even going to give you the time off. Like, forget it. I'm not even going to give you the time off. If you're going to forget it, basically, if you try that, you're fired. I'm I'm not even going to give you the time off. Not happening. But he was so determined to see if he could really make this happen that he actually starts picking up the phone and calling businesses in the local St. Louis area, knowing in the back of his mind, knowing I just, I have a dream. I don't know how, I don't know anything as far as the details, but the why is always more important than the how. So he begins to call business after business, after business, after business. And I want to pause here and say this, the why, what do you want to do? Why do you want to, why is your dream so important to you? Whatever that thing is, that goal, that is the important part. The why is the important part. But in school, we're educated on nothing but details over and over. Know how. Go to college and learn the how of a career. Learn how to do something. Decide that you're going to do a job and then learn how to do that. And as David Lee Roth said, he who knows how will always work for he who knows why. A students end up working for B and C students. C students usually own the business and A students usually work for the people because they're the the detailed, the melancholy type personality. Go back to the episode where I talked about personalities, but that's the super detailed. They're very, you know, they're on the ball and that's great. But if you want to chase your dream, you can't be focused on how do I do this? You've got to be focused on the why. The how will come if you focus on the why. So the why is what he focuses on. It's the truly important thing with your dream. He doesn't really know exactly 
how everything is going to work out, what all it's going to take, what details are going to unfold between now and the accomplishment, but he knows this is what I want to do. So he begins calling businesses. He says, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Charles Lindbergh. They call me Lucky Lindbergh and I, I've crashed four planes and, and here's what I want to do. I want to fly across the Atlantic. Do you want to buy me a plane? Click over and over and over. He, he calls hundreds of businesses. And at this point, he realizes that he can improve on the fly. He can, he can learn from what he's doing. He can get better with each phone call. He can decide, okay, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? What can I do better? Okay, I'll do that this time. Let's see how it works. Just like I talked about in the episode where I discussed the concept of plan, do, check, and adjust. He begins to implement this. So he changes his messaging. And it's been said the only valuable experience is evaluated experience. So he changes his messaging from, you know, I've crashed four planes, but I've survived to, hey, I've got lots of experience in flying, which is not a lie. He does have a lot of experience in flying. So eventually he finds a guy that will help him with the fifteen dollars to $20,000 that's needed. And he says, look, there's a reward for $25,000 for anyone who makes it. If I make it, I'll pay you back. Again, not knowing 100%, can I do this? Because no one has done it. Like they don't even know if it's quote unquote possible at this time, but he believes he can. He says, if I make it, I'll pay you back. And he's got so much confidence. This guy says, I'll loan you the money. You find the plane. Here's the money. By the way, $25,000 back in 1927 is equivalent in spending power today to over $400,000. So he figures out there's really only one plane that could actually make this flight that can store enough fuel that would be able to get from New York to Paris. So he gets the money and he actually finally gets a hold of the guy that owns this plane and he negotiates with him. And finally, this guy agrees to sell the plane. And after flying over, arriving in New York to finally purchase this plane, he's just about to buy it when the owner of the plane tells him, yeah, you know what? I'll sell you the plane, but I get to pick the pilot and you're not the one. Now, think about this. Everything he's gone through, his boss discouraging him, the other two teams of two guys dying, the the fact that he's crashed four planes. The fact that he had to call over 200, maybe even 300 businesses to finally be able to get one person to say, yes, I'll give you the money. And now the owner of the plane tells him, I'll say the plane, but I get to pick the pilot and you're not the one. Everything that he's already done would be enough for most people to say, you know what? I quit. Now he could have counted the cost and 95% of people would have counted the cost and given up. They would have done a math problem. They would have said, okay, Add this all up. What's it equal? It equals that I should probably quit. This this should be this is probably a sign. It's probably a sign from God. It's probably a sign that I shouldn't be doing. You know, you know what? I, I should I should probably give up. If it was meant to work, it would come easy. And I've already done so much, and anyone would understand that I've already tried, and it would make perfect sense for me to quit. And you know what? It's justifiable. Let me let me just count the cost. Let me just ah, it, it doesn't add up, and I, I think I'll quit. And most people would have, but Charles had too big of a dream to give up. So, as much of a bummer as that is that the guy says, look, I'll sell you the plane, but you're not going to be the pilot. He says, you know what? I'm going to continue. I'm going to make it work. And he starts talking to some people out in San Diego, California. He goes back to his team and says, guys, look, I'm I'm sorry. I had the money. I got there. The guy wouldn't even sell me the plane. Okay, look, here. I talked to a company in San Diego, and they said that they could actually build the plane. And there's an engine manufacturer up here in this location that, that has the engine that'll get the job done. And if we hook this engine... To this plane, I think we can make it work, and I've got some mechanical experience, and I think I can make it happen, so he heads out to San Diego. Now, let me pause here and share a quote with you by William Feather. He said, success seems to be largely a matter of hanging on after others have let go. Back to the story. So he works for over a month. He tuned everything in. He did the test flights. He got it 
to New York, where he's supposed to leave from, preparing to make a world record setting flight. He got everything ready, and he's now just waiting for the fog to lift so he can take off after all of this time. He's not had a plan B. He's not backed out. He's not said, you know what? It would make more sense to take someone with me. You know what? Someone else can make the flight. I just want to get the credit. He's done none of that. He's been determined the whole time to make his dream happen, no matter what it took. Oh, and by the way, during this time, a couple more pilots have tried and died. One more crew, maybe two more crews. So now the body count is up to a total of six, at least, of people that have tried and died along the way. He's got everything ready. He's waiting for the fog to lift. He's had all of these people telling him all the entire whole time, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. It can't be done. Look at, look at this evidence. Look at this evidence. Look at this evidence. Now, you can look for excuses or you can look for reasons. It's up to you. He chose to look for reasons that he could make this work. So he's still getting more warnings along the way, and now that three squads of two guys at least have tried it and died, it's impossible, you'll never make it, but he said, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Use the word impossible with caution. It's created mediocrity in many men. Warner Von Braun said this, I have learned to use the word impossible with the greatest caution. So Lucky Lindbergh is doing the last-minute tweaks on the plane, and he's trying to reduce the weight because it's going to have to have so much fuel, it's going to be so way down just to have the fuel required to get across the Atlantic to make it if everything goes perfectly. So he's trying to lighten up the plane. How can I do this? He's been up for 20-some hours at this point. Finally, he says, i got to go get some sleep. Things are ready. I'm just waiting on the fog to lift. So he goes to lay down in his bunk. He's tossing. He's turning. He can't sleep. And his aide-de-camp, the guy that's been helping him, all this time comes to the door and and knocks on the door and says, hey, Charles, you know, after you leave, what am I supposed to do? And he's probably thinking, I don't know what the heck you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be letting me sleep. I've been up for over 20 hours. You know what I've got to do. You know it's a 30-hour-plus flight. Finally, he says, forget it. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm going to hop on the plane. I'm going to wait for the fog to lift, and the fog lifts, and it's time for him to take off. And there's people there watching him take off, and they recorded him lifting off, and when they recorded it, it was actually in sound, which is a big deal for back then in 1927. And when he lifted off, they said, this may be the last time we ever see Lucky Lindbergh. And as he's flying, he, he writes in his diary, in his autobiography, he's talking about this, but he, he writes in his diary, you know, six hours out, I'm so tired. I'm practically falling asleep. I haven't slept in over 24 hours. I know I have over 30 hours to go. My body is exhausted. And he starts flying super low. Like I'm talking like five feet above the ocean so the mist from the waves can hit him in the face and help keep him awake and he said he went through some clouds a couple times and he almost lost it and he's flying and flying and flying and imagine all the thoughts going through his head of all the people on on the journey to getting his dream on your journey to getting your dream all the thoughts of all the voices all the opinions all the facts all of the things that people weighed in all the excuses all the reasons the evidence they gave you why you can't make it happen he's got this going through his head as he's flying all these people said, I couldn't make it, man, I'm getting tired, I don't know, I'm not even halfway, and I can barely keep my eyes open, and I bet this is what happened to all those other guys, and what was I thinking getting out, and I'm sure all this was going through his mind. But finally, he sees Ireland, and he realizes, I'm getting close, I'm getting close, I just gotta stay focused, this is what I've been working so hard for, for over a year, a whole year, my dream has been to do this, everybody's told me no, and I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna make it, he hits the coast of France, and he made it over the ocean. When he, when he hit the coast of France, he realizes, I have made it. The journey's almost complete. And when he saw the lights of Paris, he knew, man, this, this thing's over. I've got it taken care of. And on May 20th, May 20th to 21, that's when he made that flight. 1927, after Lindbergh 
had made the first ever nonstop flight from New York City to Paris, a distance of 3,600 miles, flying alone for 33 and a half hours. There were over 110,000 people waiting to see Lucky Lindbergh, the one that everyone said would never make it. Let me ask you this. Do you think there were times that he wanted to quit in that journey? Do you think there were times that he wanted to make a plan? I don't know. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I'm sure there's been times when you said, man, you know what? It would really make a lot more sense for me to have a plan B. It would make so much more sense for me to do something that, that everyone else would apply that they would say, you know, I, I think this will work. And I, I think that you can probably do this, but you probably can't do that. I don't think this will happen for you, but I just don't think this is a good idea. And I just, I think you should try something else. And have you, have you thought about a more traditional route? And you know, so-and-so we, we just care about you. We're just trying to tell you what's best for you. He went through all this, but he kept going, he kept going, he kept going, he kept going over and over. And I'm sure he woke up and there were days when he wanted to quit, but he got up and he tried again and he made more phone calls and he worked on the plane a little bit more and he found someone else that would, that would offer him the money. And he, and he, and he decided, you know what, when I went to New York and this happened, I'm going to go home. I'll still make it happen. I'm looking for reasons that I can do this, not excuses as to why I can't. You've got to cut off all plan B's. You've got to cut off everything in you that wants to say, you know what, we'll have a backup plan. We'll we'll do something else. You've got to go into it with 110% total commitment. Everything you've got, every single waking moment of your day has to be thinking about how can I get this done? Think about the dream. Think about the why. The how will come, but just think about the dream. Think about, man, what's it going to be like? And I can see him just flying that mail plane, visualizing, man, what would it be like to fly across the Atlantic? And in May of 1927, he made the flight and 110,000 people were there to support him, to share in his victory. What's it going to take for you to get your dream? Only you will know that. Only you will know at the end of the journey. Make sure you don't count the cost along the way. Get rid of all plan Bs. Whatever you want to do, you can do it if you'll just stick in there. <laughs> 